0: Salam, Tahir
1: Alaikum Salaam
0: Sorry I think that was a bit too loud I can see my levels peaking a little bit Yeah we're going nice to gonna be you, paranoid
1: man. about this New platform and everything
0: So just a little uh, background For our listeners And viewers um, Me and Tahir are Long time friends um, So so there might be some moments Where we delve into some Personal jokes but we'll try to explain them Tahir you've mashallah like as we were just joking, um, you've you've done Jumping quite a while straight well.
1: in, no formality, yeah, no, no salam, no du'as. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so the salam, the salam came beforehand. Um, no, no. So, so genuinely, you've you've done quite a while, mashallah, I'd say in the in the poetry landscape um, and the spoken word, and there's like a lot of things that you, from time to time, will message in our WhatsApp group. um, You know, features in magazines and. Um, scholarships and stuff like that um, I guess for people that don't know who you are I'm not, I'm not saying that people don't know who you are um, but for people that don't know who you are t- tell us your, your journey into spoken word and poetry
1: well, I have to go about a decade back no longer I was about 16 when I first started Getting to know Hasib, who's a comedian back then. Still is. And <laughs> he was thinking, why did I bring a friend on this podcast? Um, you I know, mean, I started. The, the both ways. <laughs> no, it works both Yeah, it works both ways. I'm interviewing you, and you, you can interview me. Um, but yeah, no, on a serious note, I think the journey into poetry started when I was about 15, 16. Me and Hasib were on a. A forum of sorts, and I think that kind of encouraged us to, you know, get into our creative elements. As he was into graphic design uh, and artwork, and I was into literature and poetry, and we'd share all these little pieces. and For me, it was a couple of experimental poems, and we'd receive feedback, and that kind of encouraged me personally to kind of pursue poetry as a as a medium. Uh, I obviously took that into school uh, with English teachers and, and they weren't too fond of it. A lot of plagiarism, um, remarks were thrown about, but I'm not going to get into allegations. Yeah. No, allegations. I don't want no. Yeah. That school actually doesn't exist anymore. I think it was a a school called Acton High. It was so bad that it doesn't exist anymore. It's been reformed names changed. Uh, but yeah, I didn't receive the initial support which I think is very important for a lot of people that are kind of trying their best to get into the creative uh, writing sphere is that support from back home from your school is pivotal. And the only support group I had a support uh, system I had was a forum, which is the equivalent of social media now. Um, So I had people that I didn't know uh, that I got to know later on support me, told me my poetry was great. It touched them in a certain way. Uh, And that was all the support I needed at at that initial stage to get me started. Uh, And from there on in, um, it was all about developing and honing those uh, poetry skill sets. And I'd done that through, again, sharing my work on social media. Uh, But for a large part of my poetry career, that was the end of it. Just sharing work and people appreciating from the outset. But I decided a few years ago that I'm going to take it quite seriously and uh i delved into academia um and i undertook the masters of creative writing and poetry and that's when i realized that i wasn't as great as i thought i was uh, in the world of poetry um because you know at the end of the day poetry is an art form that could be constantly developed and i was stuck in this tiny bubble of islamic poetry spiritual poetry that was quite primitive in, in that sense uh but then i academia opened my eyes to a whole different world and, and that's where my journey really kind of flourished if you if if we'd like to say that.
0: And it's been my honour to witness this from afar. Uh, I mean not afar, sorry, close up and afar actually, because there's a lot of things that you do um that you don't always um and this is something that I like I personally respect about you quite a bit. You don't necessarily always broadcast and shout from the mountains whilst you're doing it. Um, even some of like the, the, the kind of, um, awards or like, you know, uh, positions that you've been kind of granted and stuff. I don't see you broadcasting that on social media and kind of saying, Hey guys, look at me, like we're we're doing well. Um, but what you have been able to do over the last few years is, um, I guess amass this engaged social media following, I think over 20,000 followers now. Right. Yeah um so so mashallah to you mashallah brother
1: mashallah um, brother. <laughs>
0: um, so so tell me how it's been recently like kind of dealing with that as well because obviously you're, you're very active on social media so i think you're, you're kind of almost committed to like posting once a day or once every other day yeah um so t- they- t- tell me how you, you you've been able to kind of facilitate that consistency like what have you done to kind of make that consistency uh work for you
1: we we've discussed this before, cause you, you knew me quite well before the whole social media antic. I wasn't sharing anything Before any you were famous. My, uh, before the, yeah, before the um, I just refused to outright share my work that regularly, you know, I, I would write every now and then, um, I undertook the whole publishing project of lost and found and, and they decided, you know what, if people are actually interested in my work, they'll seek it out, right? Uh, and I was very wrong because we live in a world where nobody will will actively try to find uh, a nobody that is lahar Adir and, and that's where I was a bit confused. Um, so when I did decide to put myself out there because the content was always there and I think that's a question that a lot of people uh, end up asking is how do you amass a following? Um, at the end of the day, it's not about the following per se, it's more about the uh, content. If you've got the right content uh, and you know people will be uh, will engage with that content, you slowly kind of put that out and, and the following will you know, naturally appear. And that's why I realized over the past year or so, I think I started this experiment at the, at the beginning of COVID or just before uh, when I told myself, you know what, I'm gonna share a poem every two or three days and see what happens um i had no expectations i had no hopes he's just the, the, it's just for the sake of you know sharing my poetry to social media uh and i decided to focus all that energy on instagram because i thought it was a perfect visual um platform uh for my poems uh and, and f- from there on in it's just kept the, the followers kept on amassing the, the followers kept engaging with the content as well and that allowed me to experiment as well with the type of poetry i was sharing i, I realized some people will follow me for spiritual co- uh, content others for uh, things about the arabic language uh, and some people simply wanted to know more about uh poetry that is in conversation with identity, which I, I tend to delve into as well. Um, so that separation and the type of followers as well became quite, uh, important for me because now I realized I could attract a certain audience and therefore write to a certain audience. And, and now all my manuscripts cater to, to the audience that I've kind of developed over the past year or so. Uh, So, yeah, understanding who your audience are and perhaps giving them what they want to see. Um, A lot of artists, uh, poets uh, don't like to pick and choose uh, what their audience prefer. But at the end of the day, if you've amassed a certain type of audience, it's only wise that you continue to give them fruits that they enjoy eating <laughs> that's it. Uh,
0: no that actually that absolutely makes sense um hmm. especially when, when it comes to social media and stuff um one of the things that i think has kind of um distinguished you as a, as a poet is your um celebration of the arabic language um
1: yeah.
0: so i think uh i think a few years back and i think this is what kind of um gave you that confidence boost as well to like keep at it was you did 12, uh, 13 names of, um, I can't remember what now. I don't know if you can remember specifically the first one that you did. Oh, Do the you?
1: first one, for, uh, 14 Reasons Why. So 14, the 14 Reasons Why. Words for Love, um, Not yeah. to
0: be mistaken for the um, Netflix special. At the same time, was it? 14, yeah, 14 Names of Love, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and you basically look at how that's done, um, mm. uh, the, the different Arabic words. Um, I'm going to just actually share my screen again, uh, because I'm going to just try and see for our listeners, uh, viewers, listeners, if you're listening, just go to Tahir Adil's, uh, Instagram account, words by Tahir. So let me just bring this up real quick. Um, so you've got one here, eight Arab flowers. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so this one's different. This one's not the Arabic words. Uh, let me just scroll down and see if I can find it. will
1: be, will uh, be further down.
0: Oh, let me just go to the one that I just saw. It was at the top. It was over here. Yeah, 12 names of fear, right?
1: It's a live oh, experiment.
0: 12. Yeah, yeah, it's fine.
1: Uh, well, I'm loving it. It's, it's different. You can see the screen and all sorts. More engaging so, for your podcast guests.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and it makes it more engaging for our conversation when we can actually reference the things mm-hmm. that we're talking about. Um, so you've got the uh, 12 Arabic words for mm-hmm. um, fear. And then what you, you're doing is taking that word and then um, writing uh, a short poem for each one of mm. those Arabic words. Yeah, um, that that that's such an inspired idea, man. It's, it's it's so awesome to see that because I think not only is it um, not only is it kind of uh, highlighting the the richness of the Arabic the language. Arabic language. Yeah, you're also creating an emotional feeling to that word for someone who may not necessarily understand Arabic to that degree.
1: Yeah, and it's also a, a learning exercise for me as a writer as well. I think that's how it all came about. Um, I ended up in a, in a few workshops uh, at university level and a lot of what was favoured by kind of the white English um, audience was to understand more about the Arabic language per se. And that's something I wasn't really interested in and pursuing at the time. But then when I tried to explain a lot of the words, just, you know, in conversation with them, um, and, and then I shared a few definitions. I realized each definition I was sharing was poetry in itself, because that's how deep the Arabic language was. And I was like, Hey, here's an idea. Maybe instead of telling uh, a person who doesn't understand the Arabic language that Arabic not only has 12 13 14 words for love but explaining that word for love in a poetic manner and having that poetic conversation with it uh, and just by explaining the meaning and the roots of the word each each uh, description definition became a poetic verse in itself and and I found that to be you know incredibly powerful and that's why you know that was part of a, a pet project I undertook on Instagram to see how it works, to eventually work with it on a manuscript level. So a lot of what you see on Instagram is just um, a blueprint for what would happen on uh, in, inside a book, uh, which I'm which I'm working on at the moment. Um, but yeah, the Arabic language I think is something that is uh, very much understated. Like Urdu, like Farsi, they are very deeply poetic. Um, and explaining that poetic nature in English brings about poetry in itself.
0: One of the things that you're currently working on is um, the 99 names of Allah. Yeah. Um, so you're doing this series uh, every so often where you're ri- writing, is it what's one line called a couplet?
1: Uh, one line, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, for each one of Allah's names. Um, again, just like a, a, a very. Sick idea, man. Is because it, it, I guess, what you're doing, um, inadvertently, um, and, and maybe uh, deliberately as well, is you're taking something that's deeply authentic to your beginnings in poetry, which is yeah. Islamic poetry, yeah. Um, and, and I, I can relate to that as well because when I got into digital art and graphic design, it was Islamic digital art and Islamic graphic design. Yeah, But um, through that maturity, what you've done is, and obviously with your experiences with the wider world, like you said, through engaging with academia and non-Muslim and mainstream and even fringe um, poets and and spoken word artists and and musicians even, you're taking something that's deeply personal to you and producing in a way that's uh, tangible and uh, emotionally engaging to even non-Muslims.
1: Yeah it's all about accessibility at the end of the day. Um, I think say for instance if we go back to the names the Arabic names is that there's a series of poems called the 12 names of sadness I think um, and that looks at sadness as a concept and all the names and words for sadness in the Arabic language uh, and what struck me is that wasn't something that wasn't a concept that appealed predominantly to Arabic speakers, but it stretched uh, beyond that to the point where a funeral director contacted me, uh, wanting to publish this segment, uh, this poem series into a booklet where they could use in at funerals. And, and this is a, a Western funeral director, um, who comes across as, as non-religious, non-Muslim, um, so. Like you said, it's all about accessibilities, even with the names of God, I try to make them as accessible as possible. Uh, and I, I've been surprised by how often they've been shared by non-Muslims, uh, because they've resonated with it. Um. So yeah, yeah, it's all about accessibility. I think with poetry, a lot of what we tend to do, especially when we, uh, creative arts in general, especially when we get, get bogged down with it is we create all this art, fantastic artwork and fantastic poetry, but it's not accessible beyond, uh, the Muslim sphere. And I think it's there's a da- Yeah. There's a danger in that because at the end of the day, our talents can be a form of da'wah in itself. Uh, and if you could be generous enough with your art form to to have like a form of salaqajaria where you everything you do uh, not only impacts a soul but also acts as some form of dawah, uh, even if it's not now, it could be after your lifetime. Um, but yeah, it's just it's just being uh, able to think beyond the box. Try to become as uh, as accessible as possible with your with your art form. Uh, I've learned that the hard way because I always thought there's a beauty to the mystery or specificity uh, specificity of a, a piece of work, and I've always said, you know, the person reading this should actually take their time, go on Wikipedia, find out what the who these people are, what they reference, uh, and who I'm referencing in particular. And I'm it's correct in a way because you don't want the reader to be lazy. Or the same to- token, you want it to kind of appeal to a wider audience and, and for that interpretation to stretch beyond the paper and beyond the reference that you initiated. Um, and I think that's the beauty of metaphors in particular, where you could string up a metaphor and suddenly decide that this metaphor doesn't necessarily need to be, mean this. It can mean so many different things to so many different people. Um, and there's that fine and, line,
0: isn't it, though, like, yeah. um, of, of dumbing it down? Right? Yeah. So yeah. You remember that Lupe Fiasco track uh, yeah. from back in the day, Dumb It Down. Yeah. Um, which was basically his his kind of like challenge to record labels saying that were asking him to like dumb his lyrics down so it's more accessible and so it's more relevant. Yeah. Um so so, it's, so it, it,
1: but there is it's that a, fine
0: line, right? Because you can sometimes get too kind of stuck into your own thing and be yeah. stubborn about it, and it's almost now coming from a position of stubbornness and arrogance and just kind of almost like this, like it be, and and, and the worst thing is as a creative, Mm. we've witnessed creatives end up doing that, end up putting themselves in more frustrating situations because now as, as an artist, they want their artwork to be received and perceived and, and so on and so forth. But because of their own stubbornness to move just a little bit, they don't get that engagement because all artists want that engagement and then they're frustrated and then It yeah. becomes more like it. It becomes a bit chaotic.
1: It is. No, it's definitely a fine line because you've got that fine. Actually, there's multiple fine lines here because you don't want to be too clever, and 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 when you're too clever, you lose out on a, a large chunk of audience who want to be spoon fed to a degree. Uh, and there's also the the ego fine line where you try to be, you know, too smart for your own good. Uh, well, I think the, the best example that I used to use uh, is the William Blake example. So he used a metaphor where that famous line where he says, to see the world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wildflower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. So <laughs> that's a couple that completely confused the masses. You know, what was he saying? What did he mean by that? And it just looked like, uh, you know, William Blake was trying to be a bit too smart. But when you actually deeper and actually think about it, it can mean a million things to a million different people. Like most people mm. say, oh, you know what? Let me, let me think of uh, a grain of sand. What could it mean? Uh, or, or let me think of it literally. Uh, and then you start to look at the science behind it. And, then you, and there's, diff- there's, there's a grain of sand, I think, in Japan, because uh, I, I, I've done a bit of research on this, which looks like a whole universe when it's under the microscope. Wow. Uh, or if you look at this, uh, Saharan ant who actually lives amongst, um, in the desert and his world is a grain of sand because that's all he can see. Uh, and that's the perspective, uh, element. Uh, so this is what poetry and metaphors can be. Uh, and, and I think you can be smart, but there's also that danger of ex, you know, excluding a few excluding people. people, yeah. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And obviously, I think it, 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 it's contextual in that, you know, you write differently according to different mediums of delivery, mm. right? So, yeah. um, and different audiences, you know. Um, whilst you're talking about, like, the kind of hidden meanings, these kind of, like, you have in poetry, sometimes literal meanings, but there's also several, sometimes metaphorical meanings in, in one sentence. It reminds me of, of course, the Quran, which is revealed in in the format of poetry, high art poetry at a time. Um, And yet the Quran promises to be accessible to everyone that reads it, right, in any language as well. Obviously Arabic being the preferred language for the maximum depth and the maximum richness. Um, But ultimately it can be read and interpreted in several different ways. I mean, infinite ways, depending on the context, who's reading it, when they're reading it, why they're reading it, um, so on and so forth. Um, that's why I think poetry is just like an amazing, amazing art form because it's words, right? And, and words yeah. can sometimes, you know, the way we're taught words in school can sometimes be a very mundane, mundane and laborious, um, procedure. It's about spelling yeah. it properly. It's about pronouncing it properly. Uh, whereas language is so much more than that. There's so much more richness and, and, and love to it. Um, yeah. tell me. So I've got a question from Justin Mashouf. So I, I did post that on Instagram and, and we did get, mm. actually get a few questions. So I want to kind of do a nice little professional segue, um, mm. like as if I'm a experienced host. Um, yeah, no,
1: I think so- w- while you're looking for the question, the whole education system is an interesting one. Because um, I'll speak it to a few poets and I think the, the unanimous consensus is that Nobody enjoyed doing English. I, I don't, I'm speaking for myself here and, and, and a few other poems. I loved it. I loved yeah, it. You loved it. I, as in, I enjoyed delving into the anthologies and interpreting poems, etc. But I didn't enjoy English because of the type of poets on display. You, know, you had this whole, beyond the, you know, the trademark British syllabus, uh, half-caste and a few others, uh, it was predominantly old white men. Uh, are people we couldn't relate to and I, re- and I realized later on that poetry is about experience and when you read a poem that you could you know uh, resonate with in a certain way that's what you know piques your interest in poetry and there was one poem in particular which is my touchstone poem and I think we, uh, I'd like to read it at one point in this, pod- on this podcast uh, because that spurred my interest in poetry and made me write poetry because I had no interest in writing poetry and we'll get into it later. But what, what, what was the question?
0: I almost feel like it's, 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 it's better for you to to share that poem now and let's go naturally.
1: Yeah. So this poem is called Tichborn's Elegy. And I think the background is quite important. Um, so there was, a, there was a chap called Chidiok Tichborn. And I mentioned this in every wo- workshop and it's probably one of my favorite poems. Uh, so this chap is called Chidiok Tichborn uh, in the 15th century. So 1500s. Um, and that was a period where Catholicism was outlawed and any sort of association with a, a Catholic movement and, and you'll find yourself in London dungeon, potentially be- beheaded. Uh, and that's what's happened to this chap where he ended up being the cousin of a famous Catholic leader of the time or activist. Or, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but he ended up in the dungeon as a result of his association with his cousin. And now he's been sentenced to death. Um, he's due to die tomorrow. And he's in the tower alone. And he's got a few hours before his execution. And he decides to pen this poem down. So there's a lot. There's multiple narrations as to how he penned this poem down. Some say it was his own fingers, the blood of his fingers on the wall. Some say it was pen on paper but either way it's it's a powerful poem and so now you can imagine the context behind it so man is going to be executed next day uh, and being a poet himself what does a poet do on the final day of his his life is he pens this beautiful piece uh, and it it goes like this my prime of youth is but a frost of cares my feast of joy is but a dish of pain My crop of corn is but a field of tears, and all my good is but hope of gain. The day is past, and yet I saw no sun, and now I live, and now my life is done. My tale was heard, and yet it was not told. My fruit is fallen, and yet my leaves are green. My youth is spent, and yet I am am not old. I saw the world, and yet I was not seen my thread is cut and yet it was not spun and now i live and now my life is done i sought my death and found it in my womb i looked for life and saw it was a shade i trod i trod the earth and knew it was my tomb and now i die and now i was but made the glass is full and now the glass is run and now i live and now my life is done uh, so that's the poem itself so if you take the context into question, it's mm. a very, very powerful piece. Uh, and That was a poem that kind of encouraged me to write because I How realized... How
0: were you when, 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 when you first read that poem?
1: 14, 14, I think. 14. Um, yeah, so, but, but yeah, no, I think it was 14 and I, I penned my first poem at 15. Uh, but that was the poem that I would call the Touchstone poem, the one I'd always refer back to, the one I'd consistently read. Uh, and it's powerful because of the truth inside the poem, because a a poet in his final day would wouldn't embellish the truth. Um, yes, he'll use fancy words and use metaphors to get his point across, but there's a lot of truth in that poem. Uh, and even the metaphors used are are quite powerful. So So there's a line in that poem where he goes, I sought my death and found it in my womb. Um, so he was sentenced, um, to execution by disembowelment. So that's, uh, literally death by Yeah. out and, and death was in his side, inside his womb in that sense. So that the selection of words was, was incredibly powerful. And, and I think that encouraged me to, to know the, uh, to write and not only write, but write based on truth and, 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 and my truth and what I perceive as my truth. Um, so yeah, no Tichborne elegy, Tichborne's elegy. elegy by Chidiok Tichborne is definitely a poem everyone should read at least once in their life or listen to.
0: Um, that actually answers one of our uh, listeners' questions, uh, Mariam Jiwani. He was asking, "What's your constant source of inspiration?" Of course, I'm sure there's a wider answer to that, uh, but I hope that answers your question, Mariam Jewani. Um the reason why I asked you how old you were when you read that poem, um, because it strikes me that as a 14 year old growing up in West London, um, not from a a privileged background by any, any, any um, measure, um, how does a young Bahraini kid in, in not the most reputable schools or areas or climates or situations end up in Engaging with a poem like that, and and then how did that? How how did you deal with that as part of your wider image? Right, because there was a time where if you told your friends openly that, "Hey, man, I, I get down with poetry," you know, you, you might have found yourself in a bit of trouble.
1: Yeah, no, I think the answer's a bit conflicted, as a mixed answer here, because obviously I wasn't interested in classical poetry per se, but I was interested in rapping. Uh, so I had a lot of friends, uh, shout out to Jamal Edwards, who's, is very successful now, um, he's, he ended up recording all our up and coming, rapping uh, rappers, uh, in the area. And then that kind Including of. Including Ed Sheeran,
0: uh, right? Like is not huh? involved with Ed yeah, Sheeran. No, no, his
1: latest collab yeah. is with Ed Sheeran. Yeah, yeah. So one Ed Sheeran was, as in Ed Sheeran's latest track is also a collab that Jamar Edwards has uh, sorted out. But yeah, no, Jamal Edwards started off in, as a kind of grassroots, uh, cameraman, uh, he started recording on his was phone. Was a good link up TV? Ah, yeah. No, no, it was, it was SBTV.
0: SBTV. Uh,
1: yeah. rival. to sorry, Jamal. the other time, but yeah, no, he, he, he got his camera out and, and we all had those camera phones and, and, and there was a lot of talent in the community and, and the talent would manifest in rapping uh so he used to call himself Einstein and, and everybody me including we used to do our own stuff right so rap i had an interest in rapping and obviously rapping being a, a taboo subject wasn't something i could pursue um so naturally the 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 creative uh, urge lingered on in, in different ways and, and eventually did manifest in poetry um but yes yeah, to to answer that question uh going back as to uh you know how a 14 year old bahraini kid navigated around the whole idea of you know seeing what that poem was and what it made him feel uh it was just the raw like like i mentioned earlier it was the raw truth behind that poem and 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 i only thought that, po- you know, truth can be manifested in the form of rapping. I, I wasn't aware that a youthful person, a 14 year old could write about their, you know, objective view of the world and for it to be accepted. Uh, and that's when I realized later on that, you know, poetry can, it can encompass anything really. Uh, and it's not bound by anything. And I think that's what I love about poetry the most is that nobody could tell you poetry, your poetry is wrong. Because at the end of the day, your poetry is your truth. Um, so yeah no it took me a while to realize I can pen anything, whether it's something to do with Islam or spirituality or my day-to-day life or or you know what I'd done uh, uh, you know as, as an outing with my friends, a pen you know our experiences. everything can become poetry and I didn't realize that until later on.
0: Sick. Um, speaking of Acton, I've got a question here from uh, a mutual friend. Um, I'm going to ask the question first, and then I'm going to see if you can guess who it was. How does it feel to be the second best poet from Acton?
1: Second best poet? So that has to be Senna, right? Senna <laughs> <laughs> Sino, indeed. I've I, I fully accepted being the second best poet from Acton. Like, like I said, there was a, there was like a, a two-mile radius in South Acton in particular, where talent flourished. So we, I, I can name you about six or seven people and that I've, are incredibly, incredibly talented, but, but we're within like a one mile, two mile radius, came from the same school that, that and the school didn't care about us, but we all loved poetry. We all loved our creative uh, arts. Oh, there's, there's Senna.
0: She might uh, kill me for showing a video that's 10 years old. <laughs>
1: I would if that was me. Well, I think it
0: captures, it captures everything, right? Look, it's in, it's yeah. in the council estate. My name is London.
1: It's, it's a shame she hasn't, you know, released a poem quite recently. She used to be very active, but life in Qatar has clearly been too exciting for poetry.
0: Son, if you hear this, <laughs> we we wish you well in Qatar. Um, no, man, that's, uh, that's you know, because obviously like, for me, when I was growing up, and getting into art wasn't really out there. To get to get what I mean, yeah. it was kind of like that was like understandable, right? And especially the form of art that I used to get down with was street art. Like you remember, yeah. like my my graffiti thing was was yeah. big back in the day, and so that was like you know I wasn't ever seen as like all oh, that weirdo that's doing drawings. I was seen as oh, it's a sieve doing those sick. Pieces of graffiti and drawing cars and all that kind of stuff. So I was just I was very intrigued by um by by your experience of that growing up uh, in the hood because reality is we we grew up in the hood um, different parts so East London versus West London. West there.
1: London. the thing, it took it as in the first time I visited East London, I think I was eighteen years old, probably a little younger. We you can imagine that's how separated you are when you when you grow up in a certain area. You're, you're not, you're not, you're not going to venture outside of you your stick
0: postcode. Stick to your postcodes. <laughs> you can stick to your postcode
1: <laughs> But it's dangerous to go beyond your postcode. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Uh, and there was no reason for me to go East London. I was like, why do I need to go East London? i got my chicken shops here. Ironically, the experience is chicken shops. and, and oh, oh,
0: my you know, God. Okay, <laughs> okay. okay. I'm going to jump into the next question, which was asked by our boy Sadiq Damani.
1: Yeah.
0: And guess what his question was?
1: Something about chicken.
0: How much of a role did fried chicken play in making him the poet he is today? Boom. Now we can actually have a conversation about fried chicken as well. Now,
1: I think there was a while where nobody knew me for my poetry. Everyone knew me about my for my fixation fried with chicken fried yeah. chicken, right? Yeah, chicken cottage in particular. And then that's when I got to know people like Hasib and, and they're like, no, chicken cottage isn't the best chicken shop out there. There's actually... God knows what. Or, or say Morley's in East London. or No, that's South London. Uh, yeah, Morley's in you know, South
0: London thing. Chicken chicken cottage was like a central, like West, Northwest London thing. And then East yeah. London, mate, we had a whole oh, we had, rich diversity of, uh, we had Sam's as well.
1: The thing is what blew um, my mind about East London is in terms of food, you're so much more about, advanced don't, than don't, the West don't London. Don't
0: talk about East London and fried chicken, bro. I mean, yeah, no, I'm, I'm in California. Right, a
1: whole different man. sphere. As a, as in, I'm we only realised when we done our chicken tours. Uh, there was there was a time where oh, I thought you we were looking at why Oscar is there lemon? And,
0: why is there lemon on on this fried chicken? <laughs> That's not right.
1: As in, we we done a chicken tour, right? A chick fried chicken tour early early years, twenty twelve, twenty eleven. Uh, sounds like ages now, but but yeah, no fried chicken played a massive part in my poetic journey. I think. It, not because of how it inspired me per se, but of the people it, you know, it put me in contact with. Uh, and they inspired me through their work because they were also, you know, chicken addicts.
0: Let me just bring up your your actual spot.
1: Well, the the Bush one.
0: Yeah, Shepard's Bush one.
1: The Bush one's historic.
0: Is this one? Mm. Is this one right?
1: no, nah, no. Nah, th- Yeah, it might be. Zoom in.
0: Is that boss man over there?
1: Yeah, boss man. Cha cha. There it is.
0: Man, you know (laughs) what? Like, fried chicken is a part of everyone's journey in London. Every Muslim, every British Muslim's experience, uh, particularly, especially in London, is is heavily. Like, fried chicken plays a big role in our story, man.
1: You know what it, it is? It's a documentary. It's, it's our generation. We didn't have a lot of options growing up. You know, it was Sam's and then, and then and all of a sudden collage. we
0: had a lot of options.
1: Yeah, and that's what I said. The new gen, they probably don't even eat chicken. As in chicken, yeah. Gen Z head.
0: lot are probably like oh, even yeah. Nando's, bro. They're probably eating tacos or something. Yeah,
1: my meat and bones were built on like Sam's chicken, like pigeon food, pigeon pigeon meat, pigeon pigeon meat.
0: I hear that. Two man. for twos man is I'm, I'm starving right now and i'm thinking because over here in california you have to understand there's no there, you don't get fried chicken bro these guys they're doing all this nashville hot business so you only get tenders and fair enough uh, the tenders is okay but i'm not i'm not a boneless chicken guy like give me give me that leg piece bus, you know you, give me that thigh a
1: piece. Bit, of, bit of bone
0: man anyways it needs uh it needs a it needs a trip back to london soon specifically just for fried chicken um tahir i've got a question mm. here from mo bilal what inspires your strange hypothetical scenario questions? And can I just quickly explain to the listeners and viewers uh, before you answer that question? So if you follow Tahir on Instagram, um, <laughs> what you see in the newsfeed, what you versus what you see in his Instagram stories can be quite different. So yeah. Tahir will post these very bizarre hypothetical questions like would you rather you are uh, a bird or a wolf and 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 there'll be like a series of 10 of them and then sometimes <laughs> they get really really deep and they get really really kind of like controversial Wait. at times um and and this isn't something he actually just does on on Instagram man he does this in real life we were walking from najaf to karbala on this <laughs> semi pilgrimage walk and I was tired, and I, I, I you know and and every five seconds Taher is just like, "Hey, see, would you rather be a butterfly or a goat? i'm like just Tahir, just stop, just stop, and he just couldn't stop um so anyways, that's the context uh follow Tahir on Instagram and, and you 'll see what I mean, um but what inspires that Mo Bilal wants to know.
1: what inspires that is boredom you've seen it. First hand, when I'm on holiday, and it doesn't need to be a pilgrim. You don't anymore. even do it when
0: you're bored, Tyre. Yeah. You are bored
1: Tahir. you do not even do it when you're bored. You, you, know, you, you know, know what, do what it is? Sometimes when you're busy. I'm, you know what it is? I, I'm curious to see how people respond. And I've got this thing where people know this as well. I kind of spy on the answers. So I pick a few people out and I try to guess what they'd guess as what they put down as their answer. And then I kind of analyze humans uh like like a social experiment like Zimbab- like a psychology experiment uh on my Instagram page, so it sounds very creepy but it's very you know psychopathic, but
0: yeah, maybe we should edit this part out <laughs> <laughs> no one's gonna answer your questions anymore
1: <clears throat> yeah I just select people it's, it's mainly friends like I look out for friends and I try to guess what they'd say um well you know. I think hypotheticals are interesting. I think they're related to poetry as well because of the way the human mind patterns things. Um, oh,
0: you're, you're really trying here to make it connect, aren't you?
1: No, no, it, it, it does. It's okay. Re- it, it's okay. We really can accept
0: fit. it as just being a different part. You, know? <laughs> you don't need to try and bridge this <laughs> it, into something it does really I'm connect. actually doing art. <laughs> There's Living a part
1: art. two to this podcast where we'll delve into hypotheticals and how it connects with the world of poetry and metaphors and patterning and, and sequences, hopefully. Is that fair?
0: I want to pick your brains about another thing that I know that I don't think even you've shared or too much with your Instagram followers. Your obsession, uh, it's a healthy obsession with uh, the history of civilizations and in particular uh, Norse mythology.
1: That's, that's the problem of doing a podcast with your friend. He's going to dig up every single trait you have. Yes, I am fixated with Norse mythology in particular. And and because, again, the parallels uh, between our lives, our religion, and what, I, what people consider pagan civilizations. I, I'm, I'm of the opinion it's not substantiated. Uh, but if we go far enough, then every civilization obviously had a prophet a guide of sorts and we know that through the quran um and i've got a feeling that if you look at every single pagan c- uh, civilization in particular you'll find very very striking similarities with our faith and that is islam and i and i do this annoying thing of highlighting them so i've come with like oh loki is satan and and, and i drum hasib's head with a monologue of why he could be satan and why Midgard could be Earth and why, you know, Asgard could be the realms of the angels. And so, yes, I am fixated. With- I, all-
0: I love it when you do that because <laughs> um, I'm also into history, but I don't do what you do, which is actually like do the reading and the research. I just kind of listen uh, and absorb from like videos and and watching boring documentaries or oh, they're not boring documentaries, but some people may say they're boring documentaries. I think Vikings is what really did it for me. No, 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 but
1: Vikings, the thing that piqued our interest It starts with a show, right? And you're like, wait, what's this show based on?
0: Yeah. And
1: then, and then it gets a bit deep and then you realize things that like Marvel have taken ideas from Norse mythology, but why have they done that? And, and how deep is Norse mythology? And, and we always think, Oh, these pagans or, you know, statue and you know idol worshippers but in reality a lot of their civilizations believed in one god Uh, and and it's the same thing with if you look at norse mythology there is a a unifying uh, omnipotent being that they believed in and if and if anything that is you know kind of monotheistic in a way uh and 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 the way they look at their gods isn't gods per se and i think you know the historians could and the theologians could could delve into this deeper but it's more angel-like, more jin like as opposed to what we define as a God. Um, uh, so if anything, you know, their faith, their faith and, and, and their, uh, mythology can closely relate to the story of, of Genesis and the story of humanity as a whole and how it originated.
0: Well, that's the thing, right? Cause we obviously know that Allah had sent a prophet, um, to all people at all times, um. So obviously there's going to be traces of yeah. that one same religion that God has been trying to um, get humans to kind of, uh, you know, reach. Right. Yeah. Um, so and, and it talk- go and go ahead.
1: No, it tells you more about your faith as in uh, at the end of the day, we as humans, we love to kind of dig up, you know, ancient fossils of dinosaurs to learn more about ourselves. But how often do we try to learn about all these old, what we consider pagan civilizations to know more about our faith as in, we, we tend to dissociate, but why not associate as well? And it sounds, it sounds really bad because there's a Muslim podcast, but why not look at the, at the similarities? So you could learn more about your own faith and the origins of your own faith. Uh, there's always this element of, of fear that we have when it comes to looking outside the box because of what you might see but what if we, the more we look the more we're content and and our faith you know increases tenfold because of what we've seen outside um, again there is a conversation that scholars are better a <laughs> better uh, are equipped to handle but
0: as a but poet the thing, at I, the same like- time at the same time I disagree because they mm. have to maintain a certain status quo which i yeah. understand right so they can't really be going out there kind of um from the member talking about other religious beliefs right so it's almost kind of like left to us the layman to have these like abstract conversations and stuff right which obviously we've got to be mindful of to not kind of get you know things a bit crazy um but at the same time it's 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 down to us to have these conversations right even on a public yeah. pla- platform like the muslim vibe uh, because this is what like generally people are thinking and talking about, right? Um and, and the kind of thing that you mentioned there about like uh we, we don't have these conversations sometimes out of fear. Um well fear is not a good enough reason to to believe in in your religion, right? Yeah. The fear of being wrong or the fear of, of you know something like that. That's that shouldn't be the reason. So we should have that kind of uh ability to investigate and learn about other cultures and and religions um especially the ancient religions man because it's like you know it's it's not like anyone's practicing it today so you're hardly really going to convert into like some you know celtic pagan all of a sudden but i'm sure i'm sure some small circles exist um and probably some internet forum as well that might have offended right now but you know (laughs) it's just one of them things right or just enrich your own knowledge but we're 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 too scared to have these these thoughts even
1: right at the at the end of the day history in itself is a learning um is an is a amazing learning tool uh because it tells you more about yourself and more about the civilization that you're living in uh the time you're living in as well because often history repeats itself and like i said you know at the end of the day even as muslims coming from a monotheistic faith it didn't appear out of nowhere there were civilizations before that and before that and before that um, and a lot of the remnants of those civilizations exist, and and for for us as Muslims, the the least we could do is is explore that, find out what happened to those civilizations, what they believed in, maybe identify where they went wrong. If you want to be judgmental, uh, or identify where they went right, maybe we will learn something. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, civilizations are wonderful things to explore, and I've used uh, that historic element in a lot of my poetry as well um and it, and it makes for exciting poetry
0: what's next for um i was gonna say what's next for Tahir Adil, but that's really weird isn't it no let's what, <laughs> what, what are you working on right now
1: immediately uh, a few days from now uh, there's a ted not a talk but a performance so a tedx performance i'm 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 looking at it's a kind of a, a portrayal of It's called Poetry in Life, Uh, but the theme is Spill the Tea and and, and that refers to your truth or what my truth is Um, and it starts with exploring how poetry enters the mind uh, from a scientific aspect and then we'll look at it metaphorically and hopefully it'll be a decent enough performance and it'll be on YouTube at some point as well. So that's the immediate thing. I've got a few, I think three or four manuscripts that are in the works. Um, A few of them are little tiny pet projects, which I'm hoping to release separately, but uh, some are larger, like the Arabic language one that looks at the names. uh, It's called the names. So it looks at the names of the moon, the names of love, the names of wind, uh, lions, camels, everything you can imagine in the Arabic language is explored in this little manuscript. Um, And then you've got one that looks at um Islamic figures. So that is called um haven't chosen a title, but I, I think I, I will call it the chosen names. Uh, and that looks at important Islamic figures and, and prophets um uh, before then. Uh and that is kind of a simultaneous project that I've been working on. The both the both can be seen on my Instagram, um, but I think for the, for the sake of separate audiences, they will be separate projects. And then you've got Pilgrim, which is poetry in conversation with identity. And that will be published by a mainstream publisher and and that will target an audience that is interested in identity poetry. So that's completely different as well. So th- that's work in, and that's in the pipeline. Uh, but beyond this, I don't know. I'm excited about exploring spoken word as a, a video project beyond um the start of 2022 hoping to release a big spoken word video. At That's one point. sick
0: man. You you're doing mm. you're doing a lot of things mashallah and it's uh it's amazing to see that like you're keeping consistent with it as a friend. Um I'm really proud of you to like to see that you've just been on it for the last like 5 years. Um, just kind of keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing and, and doing more and more things, mashallah. And, and and I pray that God gives you the capacity to do more. Tahir, um what would your advice be to any um, young Muslim listening to this? or Not even necessarily young, but someone who may feel like they have poetic talent um, mm-hmm. but want to know what the next steps are and, and kind of like some advice for them.
1: Uh, I think the first thing is knowing where you are in your journey. Um, we often get caught up with, I need to be a popular poet. I need to get my my work out there and I need at least 20,000 followers. <laughs> and that tends to be because, because a lot of people set the bar high and people assume that is the only form of success that, I've, and if you don't, you know, achieve anywhere near that, then you're, you're not, a, you know, you're not a success and you're a failure, but. In in reality, as we all have our own journeys, Um, 10 years ago, uh, I thought I was at the top of my game. Uh, And then I realized later on that I was actually an abject failure and I didn't realize it um, at the time. But it took me 10 years to know what kind of poetry I wanted to specialize in. Often when when you start off your poetic journey, you know you've got the talent you know you can produce the words, the content, uh, and you can mix it all about, and you know you've got a few people that are supporting you throughout, but you haven't actually tapped into what your speciality is and the type of poetry that you should be exploring, and, it, and that might take another decade. And if it does take another decade, then that's fine. Um, some poets only realize um, their speciality in their 50s, in their 40s, and I often uh, men- mention... This example of Percy, um, what was his name? Percy Shelley. Percy Shelley was the husband of Mary Shelley. Mary Shelley wrote the famous novel Frankenstein. But Percy Shelley wasn't known for his body of work until after his death, uh, where Mary Shelley, his wife, published his work extensively. And that's when he was known as the greatest um, poet of our generation of uh, so not even our generation, of the entire english literature generation so beyond shakespeare so beyond everything you can imagine in the english literature world percy shelley is often ranked by academics at the very top but nobody knew who percy shelley was in his lifetime mm-hmm. um and i think a lot of people need to realize some of the best work comes towards the end of your life. And and sometimes you won't even receive the, the kind of success within this life, whether it's, you know, you wanted to share it on Instagram and nobody reposts it. It doesn't mean it's bad work. It just means nobody's noticed it yet. Uh, so my advice is find where you are in your journey, find your s- speciality and even, uh, and erase what you think, Is success because success at the end of the day is subjective, and and if if it's a great poem, it it doesn't mean uh, it it will be loved and adored whether it's after your death or in your lifetime. Um, I, you know, at the end of the day, I can't create a structure for where success lies for a poet because each poet is different. Uh, But what I can tell them is. Find your speciality. Know that if you do believe in your talent, it'll be appreciated at one point or another.
0: That's deep, man. That's deep. um Tahir, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. And inshallah, Likewise. we'll have you on the podcast again. I did want to pick your brains about metaverse and stuff, but we're going to yeah. do that. We can do that another time. Maybe I'll just give you a call on WhatsApp one day and then we can have that chat. Shall we conclude um, with a poem? Oh, let's do it, man. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go.
1: Yeah. So this poem is about prayer. And the reason I've chosen this is because somebody was discussing prayer on Twitter. And I was like, hey, and he was an atheist. Uh, and the concept of prayer is a very interesting concept because of the psychological element that there has and, and, and benefit that even atheists are kind of seeing the power of prayer from a psychological mm-hmm. point of view. Mm-hmm. So this kind of taps into that. So, prayer is not just the head in the dirt. Prayer is not just the conversations found inside and outside the cornered bricks of mosque and church. Prayer is the desperate clutch on the crucifix. Prayer is God's name left lingering on lips. Prayer is a mother whose child is sick is a shift in the breeze for a sailor ravaged by wind. Prayer is not just an earnest hope or wish prayer is beautiful chaos when the world is full of order with definite precision thread-like and linear where each wound feels overrun and each knot feels like it cannot be undone and each action can only have one sum prayer is the impossible done prayer is the wild card the hidden ace, the perfect glitch in the matrix, perfectly placed. Prayer is the question closer to you than your jugular. Answered before you begin to utter. Prayer is one whisper at a time, one broken heart's moment to cry. Prayer is our arc when our seas are harsh. The rope when our loved drop us and break us apart. Prayer is the symphony of the believer. The the dancing little blades of grass. Prayer is asking for light together. Leaves waiting, branch to branch. Prayer is poetry, and prayer is art. Prayer is every space filled that once kept us apart. So yeah, now. Masha'Allah,
0: mashallah Masha'Allah. I should do the this thing here, the clicking Click thing, it. just for our listeners, just so you know that's <laughs> what we do. At a spoken word events that was sick man prayer is poetry prayer is art I love that I love that I might turn that into a graphic
1: needs to be a graphic
0: that's sick man no mashallah bro honestly keep up the good work um, Thank and you. We'll, we'll definitely be uh, speaking to you again um, like I said I want to have a conversation with you on other things because beyond poetry you're a fascinating human being um, <coughs> and, and I hope that we can kind of explore that side uh, on this podcast
1: thank you for having me hasif it's been an absolute Tahirado.
0: honor oh and guys um, we're using a new software that lets us um, to, to record our podcast and stuff and there's sound effects so we're just going to trial out a sound effect right now as we say yeah, give us a clap to Tahirado. <laughs> the
1: first podcast get, get a round of applause Making history out of here. i right, they... I'm
0: gonna I'm gonna wait for the listeners' feedback before I keep using those. I'm gonna roll this feature out slowly, but uh, I'm excited about these buttons in front of me. And I you know, enter. it
1: sounds like those L- late night LBC bros
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, man, it's been a pleasure. Take care, salam. Take care, asalam.